Seeking for the help of the Lord, I direct your prayerful attention to Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. Romans chapter 10 and verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Romans 10 verse 3 With the Lord's help this afternoon, I desire to preach to you on the three righteousnesses that are found in our text. Three righteousnesses which the Apostle says that the children of Israel were ignorant of, specifically the first one, but it implies and it involves every one of those three they were ignorant of. And it is those righteousnesses that I decide to set before you and the blessing it will be if we are not ignorant of those righteousnesses. But first I want to speak of what Paul leads up to the text in the two previous verses and he makes three very important points. The first is that desire for men to be saved. He says, my brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now he is viewing the the whole of the, the nation of Israel and he's saying that they might be saved. He's not saying that the elect might be saved. That will be true. But he is using it in the term like the Apostle directs to to Timothy that prayer be made for all men, for kings, for all in authority, uh, for God will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of uh, salvation. So the desire is that the gospel, it goes as the Lord commanded it to be preached in all the world, and it is that the Lord will save his own people in every nation, kindred and tongue. We do not know who are the Lord's, but what we do know is that the people of God, like the Apostle here, have that real desire that men might be saved. And especially, these are his brethren, these are his kindred, these are his own people, it is like you saying, I desire the people of Australia to be saved, or for us in the UK, that uh, the, those in our land, that they might be saved. And then it comes even closer. Uh, and we think our own families, our children, uh, our wives, our husbands, our parents, our uncles, our aunts, those that are our relatives, our kindred, that we might have that same desire 
that the Apostle expressed here. I wonder sometimes whether the Lord's people lose sight of that. They say, well, well we are saved, and, and that is the world outside. Forgetting that it is from the world the Lord called us. And though he might have been in a form of worship, yet really we, we are world by nature. And, and many have been called completely without any background of the things of God at all. And especially those to whom Paul was going. And so we are not to rule people out as if to say, well the gospel is not for you or the word would be wasted for you but to have a real desire that others be saved you know when the lord uh, worked the miracles he sent those back go to thy house go to thy brethren mad gadarene go to thy friends and sell what wonderful things that, that god hath done for thee and had mercy upon thee each convert really is, is, is a missionary, is an example, is, is a trophy of grace, is a miracle of grace. And they are to be those that desire others to know that same thing. If people uh, look upon us and they discern that we've no desire that others might have what we have, in one way it's like having a great treasure, like, like the... Uh, like the lepers going out in the time of the with Syria when the Lord had caused the Syrians to flee and at first they got the gold they got um, treasures they got garments and they went and hid it and then they said we do not well this is a day of good tidings let us go and tell the king's household and we can be like that with 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 the gospel with grace with rich treasures and keep it as it were to ourselves and think well don't matter about anyone else and other people might think well if you really knew the blessings of the gospel why don't you want to spread it what why do you not want others to know this secret and this blessing and so we, we, we need to really examine ourselves do we have this same spirit that Paul had here his heart's desire, and it was that others, especially his brethren, his own people, that they be so not just that they come to chapel, not just that they uh, keep the Sabbath day or believe in creation. You can have many things that people will do right and yet not be saved. And he aims at the, the crucial, the most important thing, is that there be saving faith. They truly be saved. Saved from sin here below, the power and dominion of it, and saved eternally to be with Christ in heaven. The second thing is turning that desire into prayer. Now, obviously, we've mentioned about the desire to go and to tell and to live, pointing to Christ but there's that closet work, isn't there? We know it is the power of God. We know that except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. And so those that really know that, uh, those that know they need the power themselves and they know that others need it as well, 
And maybe they have tried to reason and tried to bring the word to their brethren uh, and they've rejected it. They, they couldn't hear, they didn't hear, they didn't follow in that way, they didn't, uh, weren't saved. Uh, and they think, what hope is there? Well, the hope is in prayer. What man cannot do, God can do. And so Paul, he turns it into prayer. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So not only our attitude, but what are our prayers? Do we pray for the lost? Do we pray for those out of the secret? Do we pray for those that are not saved now later on we'll come uh, to look more deeply at what the apostle there views this people and that's the third point that I want to bring before you as leading up to this text because Paul he notices the condition of those that he desires to be saved He's actually looking at them and he's thinking, where are they? What path are they? You, you might look at your loved ones and think, well, where are they? Well, they're right out into the world. They've completely uh, turned their back upon religion, upon the Bible, upon the way of salvation through Christ, completely turned their back on it. And you might recognize that's where they are. Uh, you might look and see a people that are even like Paul is looking at here and he sees them and they have a zeal for God. They're very zealous. They're, they're religious people. A uh, real zeal for God. And you might say, well, isn't that enough? And they go to the church and they're very active in that church and they're very diligent and they're diligent even in evangelism. He said, but, but Paul, he noticed something else as well. That that zeal is a wrong zeal. It's not according to knowledge. It's going in the wrong way. It's religious, but it's not seeking salvation in God's way, in a right way at all. And it is not saving. The apostle is looking at his brethren here and he's not blinded. He's not deceived by a form of religion. He's not deceived by those that are very zealous. He looks past all that. Where is their faith? What are they trusting in? Where is their energies being sent to? Is it saving? No, it's not. And so his desire, his prayer is that they might be saved. And we might be the same. Don't be deceived. And those of you in the chapels here today, don't be deceived and thinking, well, I'm in the Lord's house. I attend to the things of God. I listen to the word. Therefore, I must be saved. No. Look at the, the, the text here. It is a knowledge, a knowledge according to grace. It is that knowledge of the salvation of God through the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is centering in these three righteousnesses in our text. 
And he's not just learning them, not just knowing them as I might set it before you this afternoon to be able to write it down as to what these things mean, but to actually know it in the heart, to be persuaded of it and to be completely taken up with this, these three righteousnesses. So I desire then to bring before you these three righteousnesses. I'll name them first. They are clearly set forth in this verse. But we have firstly, we have God's righteousness that Paul says Israel was ignorant of. Then we have secondly their own righteousness that they were going about to establish. And then we have thirdly the righteousness of God or that comes from God, communicated from God that they had not submitted unto. Three righteousnesses. The first one, specifically Paul says, they being ignorant of, and that really then led to error in the other two as well. And so it's absolutely vital that we be not ignorant Because if we are, then what Paul says here is true of us. We are not saved. We are not saved. So firstly then, the righteousness of God. The righteousness that Israel was ignorant of. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. So this then is looking at God his own righteousness that is not communicated, cannot be communicated to another. It belongs to him as the great, the eternal triune God, Father, Son and Holy Ghost. The righteousness of God is one of the chief attributes of God. In Leviticus, We have, in many parts of the scripture, uh, we have set forth how the Lord delights in a just balance, a just weight, and in fairness of judgment in all the directions to the children of Israel. Their judgments had to be righteous, morally right and upright in the sight of a holy, pure God. We read in Proverbs 8, I lead in the way of righteousness. That is, that he is above all in righteousness. There is none more righteous, more holy, more just than that eternal God. In fact, in Psalm 7, we actually read the description of God, the righteous God the highest standard of holiness is with God. He sets that standard and he requires 
perfection. And that is really seen in all of the law that is given to Israel. The thunderings, the lightnings, the great demonstration of the greatness and power of God, of which we're told in, in Hebrews that even Moses said, I do fear and quake. To come before that great eternal God, the God who spake and this world was made, made out of nothing, in whom we live and move and have our being, that great God who fills immensity, who fills eternity, who cannot change, whose wisdom cannot be measured, whose knowledge is unsearchable, whose eye is everywhere, whose knowledge extends not just to what is seen, but into the thoughts and intents of the heart and minds of all the millions and billions of the inhabitants of this world. What is set before us here, they had an ignorance of really the majesty and greatness and might of God. They'd made him to become a little God. They'd made him to be like unto them. In fact, the Lord charges Israel at one time, Thou thoughtest that thou wast, that I was altogether like unto thee. This was the first righteousness that they were ignorant of. And it is a ignorance that really you can see so often today, and especially in assemblies, of so-called assemblies for worship. There's been such a taking away of the reverence and awe and setting apart of even the places of worship. <coughs> Instead of a place of worship being consecrated for worship, they are used now for all manner of things, just to get the income to keep the building going. No, our Lord, when he came to the temple, he cast out the buyers and the sellers. He says, my house is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves, a consecrated place of worship. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints, to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. And yet in so many assemblies, to look at the assembly, to look at their gathering, you think, well, this is a social club, or this is a coffee morning. Instead of the pews, there are tables scattered around, with chairs around them. Instead of a pulpit, there's a lectern. Instead of an organ or a pitch pipe, there's a band and a drum kit in the corner. And it bears no resemblance to those days when the people of God gathered to hear the word of the Lord, to hear what the Lord Jesus Christ would speak to them, what God would speak to them. And how that they trembled. You think of in Ezra's day. How they trembled. How they wept as the word of God was read. As it was opened on a pulpit. 
opened in the presence and in the sight of all the people and they could see the word of God that was being set before them and the awe that it had upon them. And yet you don't see that now. Hymn books are taken away and everything's on the overhead screen. People don't bother with the Bible because they don't know what version the minister is going to bring. And there's so little reverence or thought that we meet in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We meet before him that he is a devouring fire. Who can stand before this great God? And this was the the God that Israel had just an ignorance of. You know, reading through Judges recently, and especially at the the end of it, there's no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. And you have Micah and his mother, mother sitting by that thousands of of shekels and, and using it for an idol and we read Micah he had a house of gods and they're saying though that they're making these idols for the Lord and even in at Mount Sinai it seems that they made the golden calf but they were worshipping the Lord but they wanted something to look at and you speak to those that have idols today and they'll say yes but we don't worship that we're using that as an aid to worship uh, to worship the true God and Israel was like that and we can be like that today as if we need something more than what our Lord said to the rich man when he said that if one rose from the dead then they would believe he said no they have Moses and the prophets if they believe not them neither will they believe though one rose from the dead this reverence of this great eternal God is absolutely key it is central it is the beginning here and is the root cause of why Paul says of his brethren here Israel themselves that had every reason to know and understand the greatness of God through the history as a nation that this was the key why of all the errors that followed after dear friends beware of small low thoughts of God of a familiarity of a lightness a carnality anything that brings God down from his throne and from his greatness we would emphasize this in our text this first righteousness being ignorant of God's righteousness. And really then it brings in with men bringing God to their bar of their morality and their righteousness and saying that, well, God should approve this and should approve that and should go along with this and that. But when we view God as great and humble ourselves before him, then we are on the path of salvation. As soon as it is reversed the other way, then we can say with all the certainty of the Apostle Paul of the inspired word of God, these people ignorant of that righteousness are not saved. But then we have the second point, the second righteousness, 
And this is a righteousness that they had a zeal for, a zeal of God. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, their own righteousness, ignorance of that righteousness. The Word of God tells us very clearly that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. So really we're coming from the other way, from God being uh, all righteous, perfectly righteous and holy. We're coming now to man that has no holiness, no righteousness of his own, only filthy ranks, nothing but sin and disgrace, no way at all of being able to make himself acceptable to God by his works, good or bad. Remember, righteousnesses are our good works. And the scriptures say they are as filthy rags. There's no soundness in our flesh because of our sin. We are full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. The law of God, the holy, righteous law of God, such a high standard, was given, not that man was to attain unto it, was to by that obtain salvation. It was given to bring all the world in guilty before God, that God might be truly justified in this, and to show man that he is a sinner, he is under condemnation, he is lost, he needs a saviour outside of himself, he needs a righteousness that is not his own, but given him as if it was his own. But because these were ignorant of God's righteousness, that holy standard, they thought they could attain to it. Their small God, their low God, they thought, well, we, we, we can be like him. We can satisfy him. He may require just balance and yeah, we, we can make up for our sins. We can pay the price and he can look at our good works and our charities and our zeal and what we're doing for God and he's in our debt. And that again is so much the religion of our day. Adam and Eve were formed under the law and, and that is our natural bent, our natural desire is to obtain salvation by the works of the law. But by the works of the law, no man living can be justified or can be saved. Paul, when he writes to the Galatians in the second chapter, he says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So Paul is, is saying exactly what he's saying to the Romans here. The righteousness, they were thinking that it, it might come through their works. Galatians were thinking, 
we can be circumcised. We can keep the law. Paul says, no. I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And in the third chapter as well, he says, but that uh, no man is justified. Well, he's in the verse before that, verse 10, for as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. And then goes on, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. He asks the question in verse 21 of Galatians 3, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. He says the law was a schoolmaster unto Christ. Now, very often when the Lord begins to open the eyes of his people, and they're first concerned for their souls, they first realize that they are lost, they will try and do by works the things of God. But you know, the great secret is, if they truly know what these Israelites did not know, if they truly know the righteousness of God, then they will prove, we will prove, if we're walking this path, that our works are as filthy rags. We will look upon all the works of our hands and it won't satisfy us. We won't say, well, that's good enough. It will be a schoolmaster under Christ. And may we bless the Lord if ever that is our case. And maybe some of you this afternoon, very discouraged, very disheartened, because all that you do, you see sin mixed with everything. You see that you fail. You see you come th short in your thoughts, your words, your actions. May I remind you, even of the falls of God's people recorded in the word of God, even Peter denying the Lord, or David and his adultery and his murder, uh, the, the children of Israel, their murmuring, complaining, their idolatry. The picture of God's children is not of perfection. And we are told that he who so offendeth in one point, he is guilty of all of the law. And so those that are ignorant of God's righteousness, they'll be quite satisfied with their own works, their own life. Those that have been shown, have truly seen God as he is, 
they may seek righteousness by the deeds of the law, but they won't find it. It'll be a schoolmaster to them unto Christ. It'll be teaching them, using them, uh, teaching them in that way that they cannot obtain salvation that way. And if that is your case this afternoon, that which you are learning, it is a vital lesson. A vital lesson to stop you resting on your works, your good works. Is the Lord working that way with you? Showing you your sin? Showing you your failures? Showing you how far short you come? No peace, only condemnation? No rest in, the, in conscience? No assurance of life? And all the time you're looking, looking at what you are, you're seeing more and more, turn again, we read in Ezekiel, thou shalt see greater abominations than these, and you're seeing these abominations in your own heart. Dear friend, don't despair. Despair in self, but the gospel is a hope out of self, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in a righteousness that is not yours by nature, but it is given to the people of God. And so the ignorance here, or those that are going about to establish their own righteousness, really we can fall into, we say, two camps. One that's supposedly succeeding, and yet if they succeed in their own eyes, they are not saved. And the others, they're not succeeding. And it makes them humble, makes them low. And maybe without the balancing of the word, and we hope to balance it here this afternoon, it tends to despair and despondency. However, can I be saved? But dear friend, if you're brought to be like the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Really, these Two ways of viewing our own righteousness are seen in that example of those two going up to pray. The Pharisee, he was satisfied with his own works. He even paraded them before God, what he did, his tithing and all that he did. He was trusting in his own righteousness. He could not see anything wrong with it. He could not see he was bringing before God but filthy ranks. But the publican, he he beat upon his breast. He knew what was there. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so where do we stand? Where do you stand, dear friend, this afternoon? How do you view your own righteousness? Where have your efforts been? Zealous and with every desire to be saved. My point you this afternoon to where salvation is to be found. Hymn writer says, Out of self to Jesus lead, for an in us intercede. And that's where we need to be led, out of self, away from the law, and unto the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. So I want to look then thirdly at the... Third righteousness, the righteousness of God, that these 
Brethren, these of Israel had not submitted themselves unto, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Now notice the difference in the order here. In the beginning, the first righteousness, ignorant of God's righteousness. But now this third one, submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God, that comes of God. It's like we had recently regarding faith. We can have faith in Christ, and we can have the faith of Christ, that faith that comes from him as the author and finisher of faith. And here we have the righteousness that comes from God. He is the author of that. We have in Jeremiah concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the name wherewith he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And then later on in the 33rd of uh, Jeremiah we have this is the name wherewith she, that is the church of God, shall be called the Lord our righteousness. It is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to make this very clear. What puts away sin is the precious blood of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ came, made under the law, uh, made of a woman to redeem them that are under the law. He took our place, took our nature and had laid on him the iniquity and sin of us all, the sin of his people. I lay down my life for the sheep, the other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And he lays down his life, particular redemption, specific love for those for whom he took their sins and bore their sins in his body on the tree and suffered in their place the wrath of God. The beautiful type of that with Abraham and Isaac, Isaac taken off the altar and the ram put in his place and the ram slain and consumed in his place. We read, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Tis Jesus in the sinner's place. And that is vital that we see that substitutionary offering. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. The children of Israel in Egypt, they sheltered beneath the blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. It is the blood that cleanseth from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth from all sin. Now, maybe be very clear on that. It is the blood, it is that which we remember at the Lord's Supper, in the cup, this cup is, is given for you, uh, this New Testament in my blood, it is the blood that we remember that was shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You might say then, well, why is it here being emphasized on righteousness? Why is it not emphasizing on the blood? Because these two things, they go inseparably together. Those for whom Christ died and shed his blood, those are they that 
he will justify, those are they that he will call by his grace, show them himself, show them themselves, bring them to a knowledge of their own filthy rag righteousness. He will bring them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what is emphasized throughout this chapter a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To whom? To every one that believeth. Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith, and he virtually is saying in these verses, is not uh, who shall ascend up into heaven and to bring Christ down, who shall have great heights of experience, no, not that, or depths of experience, bring up Christ from the dead, no, not that, but what is it? The word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. The word that we preach to you, that is the word of faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is the emphasis here. They that believe, they will be baptized. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Not baptismal re regeneration, but baptism as obedience uh, to the will of God. But it is a believing. It is Christ that died. Yea, rather it is risen again. Well, in that believing, to every believer, the Lord then imputes or puts to their account his righteousness. It is in his righteousness that we stand before the throne of God. We might meet with someone in this life and we might see them as perhaps a, a, a godly person, a person that's living an upright life. And then we might ask them, well, where did you live? How were you brought up and what was your life like? And they falter and they're very embarrassed because they're ashamed of their past life and they're ashamed of all that they've done. But you know, that won't happen in heaven. We might think, well, we get to heaven and we think of what our testimony is in our life. We're so ashamed of our righteousness. But the wedding garment that God gives his children is not their own working out. It is what Christ has wrought out. And they stand before the throne faultless. That righteousness is not covering their sin. It's not blotting out their sin. The blood has done that. But the righteousness is enabling them to stand before the throne without shame in righteousness that's spotless, acceptable in the sight of God, of which he can see no fault, no spot in thee. Thou art all pure, black, yet comely, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that then, it translates here below, as to how we walk here below. 
God's dear children will walk as uprightly as they can. The salvation of the Lord is not to save from sin as just a saving to heaven. It's to save them from the power and dominion of sin here below. They hate sin. They mourn over it. They struggle against it. But their efforts, their struggles, their desire to live holy and godly and upright lives is not arising from the thought of obtaining heaven by that, but because they don't want to grieve the Lord. They hate the sins that made uh, the Lord to suffer, that were laid on him. And so it does not bring us, as Paul he deals with in, in Romans 6, shall we sin that grace might abound? No. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? But our hope, our hope in life, and it's a balance every time we feel so uh, sick of self, so full of our sins, so such a failure, so unlike we feel the Lord's people, and yet to be reminded our righteousness is in Christ. He is our acceptance. In Christ's obedience clothe and wash me in his blood, so shall I lift my head with joy among the sons of God. And you know these people here, it re we read they have not submitted themselves. Submitted? But this righteousness is free. What are they not submitted to? God's way of salvation. Man, proud man, will not be humbled unless God humbles him. He will not submit to salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It will not submit to have it freely. Whosoever will, let him come and take of the waters of life freely. And man will not come. He does not like to have something that is set before him that free, without cost. He wants to be able to put his part for it. And so this submitting, it is really telling us that man in his proudness, he, he will not bow down. He will not humble himself to receive the gospel on God's terms as a hell-deserving sinner. Like the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He is too proud. Bless the Lord if he has humbled us and laid us low in the dust and brought us to be begging for mercy and looking for hope in Christ alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. But these of Paul's countrymen, they were not submitting, they were not bound down, they were not receiving this righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were despising it, though not valuing it. Is that different with us, dear friends? Do we prize it and value it as our only hope, as what we rely on, that Christ has wrought for us, that we shall stand before God? There's great comfort, there's great joy in this provision of the Lord. And what leads to it is a path that seems so opposite it is a path that is humbled and brought down. And isn't it not the path of our Lord, who was so great yet humbled himself 
and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and giving him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, submit, and brought low to worship him and to bow before him. Pride is a terrible thing, and it keeps men from the Saviour, from the way of salvation, but those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And may we be humbled at his footstool. May we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Trust in his precious blood, his sin-atoning blood. Trust in his righteousness and not be going about to establish our own. Yes, desiring to live godly and upright lives, but not with an idea of attaining heaven by that. Our hope only in what Christ has done, what he has suffered. And bless the Lord then, if when we look at these three righteousnesses, you can say before the Lord, Lord, I am not ignorant of these. Thou hast taught me these three righteousnesses. Bless the Lord for that, dear friends. Give him the honour and glory that he has opened your understanding, shown you these things. All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Great shall be the peace of thy children. May the Lord, through the word this afternoon, give peace to some poor soul, as the truth here is set before us in the word. The Lord add his blessing. Amen.